Hello and welcome, welcome all to the world's premier Star Wars novels um, and really literature at large podcast, Thronderdome. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Dottie. I'm luxuriating in my in my voice, my beautiful pipes right now because we had a bit of a hiccup in the production schedule uh, thanks to me having a bout of bronchitis over the last like month. It was awful. Uh, but you know who saw me through it? Yeah, br- brace yourselves, uh, listeners. Daniel was sick. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a bold... It must have been a day that ends in Y. In a bold departure from the, from the rest of this year, uh, I, I had an illness. Um, but through all of it, my, uh, my guiding light, uh, the, the man who was at my bedside while I, while I coughed delicately into a, into a, a handkerchief... Uh, quite, quite, uh, pitifully, uh, Reverend Ronnie Gardaki. Ronnie, how are you doing tonight? Well, pretty good, considering I used my, I used the power of prayer to, to heal you. You did, you prayed over me, we spoke in tongues, and, uh, eventually... Well, I mean, it was, it was really less of a prayer and more an admonishment for you to stop, uh, uh, being such a malingerer. (laughs) It's what we it's what we call the tough love approach to faith healing, where you basically just admonish somebody for wasting God's time by being sick. It's like that Simpsons joke of the episode where the uh, the bikers take over the Simpsons house and and uh, and John Goodman's character is saying that he tried to he tried he tried yelling at the uh, at the stain on his jacket mm-hmm. to get it to, to get it out. Yeah. You know, I tried everything. I tried yelling at Daniel. I tried, uh, I, I tried, I tried making, uh, making crude and uh, and insulting memes about him. You know, uh, all the, all the all the classic uh, tenets of healing. Right. You try going through his follies one by one, reminding him of them. But we're not speaking of which. I speaking of which, I finally put uh, this podcast on my phone because I, you know. Why not listen to myself while I'm on the bus? Sure. And I, you know, you don't notice until it's like, it's like on a, on your phone, like how many episodes of this podcast are, are titled Daniel's Folly. (laughs) I think we're up to like four or five at this point, which I think we only have about 25 to 30 episodes. It's a pretty hefty percentage. Yeah, I think with um with Daniel's ultimate folly with the way I completely botched the Delta Source subplot, that that gets us up to that definitely gets us up to 5 or 6. I, I think actually some of the bonus episodes are Daniel's folly as well because that's what we titled the one on Marcel the Shell with shoes on. But yeah, that, that was a classic uh Daniel boner. <laughs> but anyway, we're not here to talk about that. And we really aren't. We're here. I mean, I mean in a way we are here to talk about that, but but more importantly, we're here to talk about uh, Star Wars because we're in we're in like the the third quarter of uh, the of the third book. Yeah, yeah, we're we're getting toward the end of the the end of the trilogy. So there's a lot. I mean, we mentioned kind of last last time that uh, you can you can see some of the threads being sewn up. You know, like Niles Ferrier got blasted out of the sky. Uh, Delta Source was solved. So I mean, Timothy is kind of putting some things to bed. He's getting ready. He's getting ready to, to to bring it home. So we're at chapter nineteen of the Last Command, the third and final volume in the Thrawn trilogy. Um, if this is your first episode, welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here. All of what you just heard is probably a lot of nonsense. You have no idea what we're talking about. And I would recommend that you listen through the entire podcast 
to uh, get you up to speed on the narrative. But uh, w- with all that out of the way, let's hey, let's let's get right into it. Um, we open chapter nineteen with uh, Han, Lando, Luke, Mara, Chewie, and the droids still struggling through the Wayland Wilderness, planet Wayland Smithers, specifically struggling to free R two from a tangle of tree roots. Um, so you know those uh, in those old adventure movies where the protagonists spend like minutes grimacing as they cut through jungle vines or climb rocks and it's just shots of people doing the same thing for five to six minutes uh that's what happens in the first part of this chapter and it's exactly as boring um but we do get a mention of i i disagree with you daniel i think it's (laughs) riveting because the first page of chapter 19 you've got a classic zonism which um i will i will share with with you and the listeners um, the passage, uh, let's see. Beside him, Chewbacca and Mara were crouched with weapons drawn, ready to shoot the snake-like creatures that sometimes came boiling out when you <laughs> cut into them. Yes, snake-like creatures. I, my note there was that, uh, at least with snake-like creatures, we have vivid imagery to, to keep our interest <laughs> in, this, in these scenes. Um, but all this uh, garbage is interrupted by a complicated whistle being heard in the distance, and Han asks R2 to scan for predators. Uh, Nothing within 20 meters, which makes Lando wonder where they went. Han quips, maybe the same place the natives went. Lando has a bad feeling about this, but the gang presses on. Luke notices... I think Han has a new insult for for R2-D2, because we usually focus on the uh, quasi-slurs he he lobbies at C-3PO. Yeah. Uh, In this, he calls... uh, R2-D2 short stuff. He does. And I thought to myself immediately, cool, that's a new nickname for Daniel. <laughs> yeah, you forget, and all the, the, the hate that Han spews 3, 3PO's way, you forget that R2 is also a droid and that Han hates him as well. Um, but uh, Han's just sort of a... Han's a problematic fave, I've got to be honest. He's a bit of an Archie Bunker type, isn't he? You know, just kind of... You know, he's part of the family, and we love him, but yeesh, you're just kind of a nasty guy, aren't you? Uh, as they're as they're tromping ahead, uh, Luke notices a clawbird nest coming up, but it's totally empty. Cla- classic animal for Timothy Zahn. Yep, the old a clawbird. clawbird. Uh, a little up the way, they find a clawbird dead of a knife wound. Che- also, don't all birds have claws, really? Uh, yeah, they do. Do you know why they all have claws, Ronnie? I feel like you're going to tell me whether or not I I uh, want you to or not. No, it's because they're all theropod dinosaurs. Just like uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex or Velociraptor. Now I'm just imagining, like, uh, Zahn having to write a zoo book and he just, like... Uh, the trunk elephant is known as... <laughs> <laughs> the neck giraffe. The antler deer. <laughs> I I think I would love for Timothy Zahn to really like stretch his his uh writing muscles and do something non uh non Star Wars sci-fi horse shit. Like imagine him like doing a period drama. <laughs> it would be interesting to for him to try his hand at historical fiction to uh see how he decides to describe or not describe anything. But anyway, I'm trying to talk about this clawbird. Um, 
Chewie rumbles a remark and Han concurs, this thing had been killed with its wings open, which meant it was killed while in flight with a single stab wound, which is some impressive work. Uh, the gang has to stop again to deal with R2 getting tangled in some bullshit. Uh, and the delay means that they may as well set up camp for the night. Mara asks Luke what the deal was, was back there with Han and Chewie, and Luke explains the dead clawbird. Mara surmises that it might be the Minrushi, who are supposed to be very skilled at close-blade combat. If, you, if you'll recall, that's one of the two native alien species of Wayland, the Minrushi and the Pazdan. Uh, but just then, Luke gets the thousand-yard stare of someone sensing someone in the Force. She reaches out, and just at the edge of consciousness, she finds them. Alien, unreadable minds. Five of them. But just as she's getting a better feel for them, there was a surge of emotion, and the minds left. And we get this odd exchange. Uh, I'm just going to read the whole thing here. Mara looked at the double-leaf canopy overhead. Could we have picked up an Imperial Patrol? No, Skywalker was positive. I'd know if there were any other humans nearby. Bet that comes in handy, Mara, Mara muttered. It's just a matter of training. She threw him a sideways look. There had been something odd in his voice. What's that supposed to mean? He grimaced, a quick tightening of his mouth. Nothing, just... I was thinking about Leia's twins. Thinking about how I'm going to have to train them someday. And I just love how... Fo- Mara is just so fucking hostile all the time. It's very funny. that He made some... And I really don't, like... Kind of reminds me of a certain wife of a friend I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We bring that up every time. But I just mean, like... That was a completely innocuous thing to say. It's just a matter of training to, like, build your skills up. And she's like, what are you... What are you... That's supposed to mean? Uh Well, I think it's actually smart characterization because... Uh, yeah, I know, I'm actually praising Zahn in this, uh, but I, I think, like, the whole thrust of, uh, of Mara Jade is that she is trying to hate, uh, Luke Skywalker as much as possible, and oh, yeah. her, like, hatred is just sort of, like, ebbing away the longer she gets to know him, so she's kind of, like, intentionally lashing out at him because she knows that, that, like, every, every third page... She's going to get a psychic message from the Emperor to tell her to kill him. <laughs> That's a good point. Her heart's not really in it, so she's really trying to, like... She's trying to force her it. Heart re- her heart really isn't in it by the end of this uh, this section of the book. That's true, yeah. But before a, before yeah. you move on with the... Before you move on with the plot summary, I hate to harp on this, but it's it's really probably my, my main pet peeve with, with Zahn is... Because uh, we also get the in- introduction of... Vine snakes and space slugs. So he's gone from he's gone from like saying, "Okay, snake-like creatures that conjures an image," and then it's like, "Well, why don't I just say they're snakes? They're, all, they're snakes. They're vines. Vine snakes. Are those different from the snake-like also, what creatures? Is the al- what is the alternative to space slugs when you're in space? But uh, this this does bring up the subject of what training Mara has had. She insists she had all the basics. But Luke suggests a refresher course. He wants some. He wants uh, pointers on refresher courses. Mara's blood runs cold, and she asks if she's seen some. If he's seen something about what's ahead of them, but Luke says no, not really. All the while, she's getting a lot of "you will kill Luke Skywalker" migraine headaches. Uh, Luke wants her to be a which is which is getting to the point of the the Simpsons shining par- shining parody where 
where Mo is just telling Homer he's got to kill his family. Yeah, it's just it's just but, very direct. And, and like and like Homer, Mara is just continually being distracted. <laughs> But uh, Luke can tell her that he just wants her to be as strong in the Force as she can be for when they get to Mount Tantus. Mara asks, what for? And Luke cryptically replies, for whatever purpose your destiny calls you to. He said, his voice quiet but firm. Uh, I refuse to believe Luke Skywalker knows all of those words and what they mean. You think? don't think he knows purpose? No, I don't. <laughs> or destiny? Have you been reading these books? He's the ch- have you? He's the chosen one. He knows what destiny is. Destiny, I'll grant you, but purpose, mm. I, I, <laughs> maybe not. Um, if he was, if 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 if, if Zahn had had thrown in like something like uh, he was thumbing invisible uh, suspenders, then I would maybe buy it. But I don't know. Again, this is, this is kind of nitpicking, but isn't that what this entire podcast is about? Taking a critically acclaimed work of literature and poking holes in it because we're bitter nerds. <laughs> Who will never achieve anything like the the monument to human achievement that uh, Timothy Zahn if we created. Go to Tampa, if we go to Tampa, we're two nobodies. <laughs> if we walk into the Golden Corral in Tampa, they don't know us from Adam. Well, Timothy Zahn walks in there, and they they just show him right to the chocolate fountain. You know, uh, it's probably one of those things where they've got like a a caricature drawing of him on the on the wall, or even bet or better yet, they have a sandwich named after him, and it's called just the Zahn sandwich. There's no descriptions to what it what is in it. <laughs> uh. Bread and uh, meat stuff with occasional vegetables. <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's stacked with meat-like slices and uh, and and nondescript toppings <laughs> and and an unfamiliar sauce. Meat- <laughs> <laughs> Just laughing at the at the phrase of meat-like objects. <laughs> yes. So anyway. Uh, we we now jump to podcast favorite Wedge Antilles. He is sidling into his seat with the other Starfighter Squadron commanders in the war room on board a Mon Calamari Star Cruiser. Uh, low and and now this uh, and now this brings up my second favorite part of uh, of of reading this book. My first favorite being, of course, the poorly described animals. Yes. My second favorite is. Bad names, and this is rotten with them. There's a lot of bad names, and this is the funniest uh, introduction of a character who is surprising and amazing to the uh, point of view character that the audience knows nothing about and does not care about since Garmbel Iblis. Uh, because we have introduced, we have Lo Wedge. Fancy meeting you here. Wedge looked at him in mild surprise. It's Pash Kraken! Now you're thinking to yourself, there's no way Zahn could come up with a dumber name than Pash Kraken. Then he then he surprises you with the next clause where he says, Son of the legendary general Aaron Kraken. And Aaron is spelled A-I-R-E-N. Yes, uh, you could have just said Aaron is spelled stupidly, but I appreciate you spelling it up for the audience. Yes, but I wanted to... The way in which it's stupid. <laughs> Wait, that's true. Because there, there are so many possibilities of... 
of uh, Zahn butchering the name Aaron. That that will be the title of our uh, our, our exhaustive uh, academic study of these novels: the ways in which the Thrawn trilogy is stupid. Um, and while I'm at it, we've got we've also got a General Krill, uh, Travia Chan, mm-hmm. which we already got a Chin. The last name Chan. The last name Chan suggests space Chinese. Zahn is actually the creator of the space Chinese that George Lucas would go on to use as the Trade Federation in The Phantom Menace. Exactly. That's exactly what's happening. I'm telling you. I mean, and, and George Lucas has decided his decision on how to tweak the space Chinese is let's make them incredibly racist. <laughs> let's make him way more <laughs> like we'll do like Charlie Chan yellow face style. Incredibly racist. I guess that's that's really the bright side of uh, Zahn being terrible with descriptions is like we don't get we don't get descriptions <laughs> we, of like we don't get how racist horrible he was racial thinking, caricatures. Right? <laughs> now it may have been in his mind when he wrote it, but at least we don't have to hear about it. Um, but, uh, uh, Wedge Antilles and Pash Kraken yak a little bit about how badly it's going on the front lines. Eventually, Admiral Akbar addresses the gathered officers together with General Crix Maidine and Colonel Bren Derlin to continue with our cavalcade of stupid names. Akbar says, For my money, the worst name is, is Varth because that's just combining the names of Darth and Vader. Yeah, that's very bad. Uh, Wing Commander Varth. Um, but, uh, uh, Akbar says that, yes, it doesn't look good. Thrawn is seeking to undermine their resolve and morale with the Coruscant attack, but it's time to throw both aspects of this attack back in the Empire's face. Akbar hands it off to Maydeen, who informs this bunch that in order to clear the innovative form of siege Thrawn has placed them under with the, uh, invisible asteroids orbiting the planet, they will need a crystal grav field trap, or CGT. Uh, Republic Intelligence has identified three, all located in Imperial-held space. The most obvious location is a little too obvious, so they aren't taking the bait. No, but they are going to hit the Imperial Shipyards at Bill Bringy. Old favorite Bill Bringy. Old favorite stupid name Bill Bringy. Get ready to hear that a lot. Which, which given, given how stupid the names are in this chapter, Bill Bringy is like an old friend. Won't you come home, Bill Bringy? That's what I say. I mean, Bill Bringy compared to, let's see, uh, Clat Christock mm-hmm. uh, is is genius. That, that, that is a good one. Uh, I think there was a Planet Fedge uh, earlier. That's pretty bad. Yeah, Fe- Fedge and, uh, and Kataris. I mean, Kataris is, like, lame, but it's not noticeably stupid. Fedge is real bad. Kataris is a name that you could conceivably have in uh, in a Dune novel, I think. <laughs> so we'll we'll if give it a we pass. Talk about if we want to talk about good sci-fi. That's right. Which we don't because we're talking about we're talking about Star Wars. Exactly, exactly. Um, so Colonel Durlin starts uh, talking to the assembled uh, officers. They will they will lead a feint at the Ten Green system to convince the Imperials that they took the bait, while Akbar commands the actual attack on Bill Bringy. Any questions? Then Pash asks, Hey, uh, what if they see through us? And General Maydeen is kind of like, Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, from here... We change, we, change, we change perspectives to Daniel's... Uh, uh, sorry to speak for you, but I think your favorite aspect of the book, which is uh, 
characters being introduced waking up. <laughs> That's right. We did it again. We did it again. Uh, we go to, we're, we're at Leah, or Leah, Leia waking up in her apartments. And even back, this, this combines my two favorite things about Timothy Zahn novels. Characters waking up and Nogri. Uh, because she's, she's woken up and is staring at the ceiling. And uh, a soft Nogri voice comes from the shadows beside the door. Do you require anything, Lady Vader? Uh, no, Mob Vakar. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, I'm going. I'm going to change course and say I actually kind of like the Nogri now because of Zahn's uh, characterization of changing them from like uh, gray-faced losers to like obsequious uh, servants of of Leia and, and Luke. Yes, <laughs> and they're so obsequious that they just that like. Leia and Luke get get noticeably annoyed by them, <laughs> right? Um, so it's like even the characters in the book acknowledge that these characters suck. They are annoying, and that's validating. I think that helps us, you know, that helps us get on board with the whole narrative. Yeah, because it'd be a different thing entirely if Zahn was trying to paint these guys as cool. Then he's clearly not. Yeah, right? they're, they're just deadly nerds. They're they're little gray jerks. They're little gray jerks. Yeah. Um. But Leia says uh, that when you you know do, do you require anything or is anything troubling you? Uh, Leia says uh, it's you know she's just trying to fit a puzzle piece without knowing what puzzle it belongs to. And it says here slowly the half remembered dream images started to sharpen. It was something Luke said. No, it was something Mara said. Something Luke did. They fit together somehow. I I don't know how, but I know it's important. Uh. And Mubvakara reassures her that as the Mal Ari Ush, the Lady Vader, she will surely succeed. Across the room, she senses the twins getting restless with hunger and decides the puzzle can wait until morning, presumably so she can breastfeed her children. Uh, don't use the B word. Hey, look, I, hey, hey, Zahn introduced this to the trilogy, okay? Not me. Uh, he never, he never said that word, though. He heavily implied it. You're... you're... The editors um, he implied it, but he walked so Wikipedia could run. <laughs> the Wikipedians picked up breast. picked up what he was dropping. Um, but anyway, before we move on to chapter twenty, I just wanted to point out something I like a detail I like, which is that Leia always has her lightsaber underneath her pillow. And yeah. if you think about it in like our terms, it's just as insane as having a gun underneath your pillow <laughs> like every night. You know, right. With your babies in the room? Yeah. <laughs> I, I just want to see, like, one of those advocacy groups put out a stat saying, like, you know, if you have a lightsaber in your home, it's a 400% higher chance of uh, of you or your family suffering lightsaber burns. <laughs> uh, but with Chapter 20, we, uh, we rejoin Grand Admiral Thrawn and Captain Peleon on the Chimera, wrapping up a 30-hour... Battle. It says specifically 30 hour battle to win the heart of the Ken Chen sector. Which seems like really drawn out for a Star Wars fight. Typically those things are wrapped up in about 20 minutes. But, uh. Also, it says the rebel ship flickered with pseudo motion and vanished into hyperspace. Yeah. Let's. I don't know what pseudo motion means. What's well, come up several times in the trilogy so far? It's, it's the. The, uh. What you see when a ship jumps into hyperspace. Because it's not moving exactly. It's just going up a level in reality to go through hyperspace. 
I guess now is as good a time as any to make this confession. I've never seen the Star Wars movies. <laughs> that, that's not that's not true. But what if it was? That is that isn't Just... true. That is not true. You went through a you went you put yourself through the the gauntlet of watching every Star Wars movie in like a week. Uh, that, a couple but years that ago, that would be funny if my knowledge of Star Wars was via these books and the movie Fanboys. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really good. I would I would love to like we should do that as an experiment. I should actually raise Moira on uh having only seen fanboys and read these books for knowledge of Star Wars and then ask her what happened in Star Wars. <laughs> and see what she can do. That would probably together. be more traumatizing to her than if you raised her like the, the parents do in Dog Tooth. Where <laughs> <laughs> they're not al- allowed to leave the house and they think cats are monsters. Yes, yes. Uh but anyway, Thrawn orders that the fleet draw down from full battle status and sends a message of congratulations to all the ships. That's why these, these guys are going to die for him. They love that. They, are, they love praise. Um, Plan informs Thrawn that rebel ships are quietly drifting into position in the Tan Green area, and Thrawn instructs that they be left unmolested. We don't want our prey frightened off, he remarks. There is something troubled in his demeanor, however. Plan asks, is anything wrong? I don't know, Thrawn said slowly. I'll be in my private command room, Captain. Join me there in one hour. Perhaps I, by then, I'll have an answer to that question. So he needs to... And my immediate thought is that he's going to spend that hour jerking off. He's got to clear his mind! <clears throat> you know, you can't, you can't be he's got to dislodge the pipe! <clears throat> you can't be a tactical genius if you got, you know... If, if you have uh, breasts, parentheses, legends, on your mind. Uh, like on Wikipedia. I mean... By virtue of the fact that there's procreation, we have to assume that sex exists in Star Wars, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that masturbation exists in Star Wars. That's true. We could This might be a this might be a paper <laughs> situation all over again. We don't we don't know for sure that anyone has ever jerked it in Star Wars. And no one's ever made like a remark or a joke about it, so we can't we can't put it in our our novel. After we're done recording, check Wikipedia, okay? <laughs> I'm going to check the Wikipedia health and development section. <laughs> but anyway, uh, from with that little episode, we go now to the smugglers. As uh, Gillespie reads and passes on to Mazik, uh, Sam, sorry, Samuel Tomas Gillespie, reads a data pad, then hands it yes, off please to... please use his full name, sir. <laughs> hands it off to Mazik. Mazik is impressed that Card can dig up this kind of information, and Card demurely says that mm, he merely picked it up around... Mazik declares that it seems like a pretty desperate move, but Card disagrees and says it's more like a return to the bold tactics the Rebel Alliance used to be known for. So thanks, Tim, for giving us most of a page before we knew what they were actually talking about. This is what smart authors do. This is also another uh, another part of the book where, where Zahn uses the word space in a questionable fashion. Oh, yeah. A, a, um, Gillespie says, uh, where in space did you dig this stuff up from anyway? <laughs> right. It does, it always... Look, I understand they're in space, but, like, saying what in the world would accomplish the same thing. Or, like, you know? or what in the, ga- where in the galaxy? Right? I mean, that would make more sense, because the setting is the... St- where in the galaxy, yeah, would work Yeah, better. yeah, and you, you get your space stuff in there, and it, and it makes a little more sense for something someone would say. Um, <laughs> but anyway... Um, uh, it's also at this point that we learn they're in a tap cafe with their various goons lounging about. 
Uh, Mazik studies the data pads some more and mentions that since his people hit Bill Bringy, they've probably revamped their security setup. To which Card says, well, so much the better, as they won't have had time to find the holes in it yet. Mazik is interested, but uh, non-committal. He doesn't want Thrawn anywhere near Bill Bringy when he's there. Card says, no problem, as he has contacts in the systems where the Republic is setting up, and uh, besides getting can slice us into the battle plans. I forgot to mention, sorry, I, I, I skipped over some of my notes. Um, Card has, has managed to figure out that the Republic is going after a CGT array, and so he figures if they're willing to go to battle for one of them, they would probably be happy just to pay for one. So he wants the smugglers, that's what they're talking about, the smugglers are going to hit Bill Bringy, uh, unaware that the Republic is also planning to hit Bill Bringy in order to snag the CGT first and then sell it to the Republic. Boy, I am sick and tired of woke teachers uh, uh, teaching CGT in schools. <laughs> Get it out of the classroom. Get Hey, we need less CGT and more three R's. Uh, what are the three R's in Star Wars? Rebels... Uh, Ran- Republic. Republic and Rancors. Boom. Yes. Did it. <laughs> so anyway, Mazik is in. Uh, Gillespie is likewise on board, both for his hatred of clones and to get some kind of compensation for his lost estate on Yukio. And, uh... Yu-Gi-Oh! Uh, <laughs> the planet Yu-Gi-Oh! Yes. And now we, uh, we switch back over to Coruscant where Admiral Drayson is presenting uh, the macro-binocular recording that Gillespie had of the Yu-Gi-Oh! attack. He freezes the playback right at the moment the Star Destroyer's turbo laser supposedly penetrates the planetary shield, but instead shows that, no, a second shot from inside the shield is what struck the planet's surface. Leia is there in the meeting, and uh, she's convinced after a minute, and remembers that Akbar had mentioned that Thrawn would find novel ways to use the cloaking shield. I don't think you'd find... I like that, Dr- I like that Jason's basically watching loose change. <laughs> That's right, it's an inside job. <laughs> and, like, and like loose change, like the later revisions of this video get really anti-Semitic. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Sorry, anti-space Semitic. Anti-space Semitic. Yeah, it's uh, he start he starts talking about being stabbed in the back a lot. Um, <laughs> and they had a, a great line. Drayson had a good line. Um, you know about like you know Akbar had mentioned that Thrawn would find novel ways to use the cloaking shield, and Drayson says, "I don't think you'd find anyone arguing that point." Drayson nodded. At any rate, this should put an end to this particular gambit. So once again, Thrawn's gambit falls flat. They, they saw through it. Uh, Timothy loves referring to Thrawn's plans as gambits. Uh, Bell Iblis, Garm, notes that the coordination required for such a uh, kind of operation is impressive and floats that perhaps the Dark Jedi from Jomark may have been involved. Leia has no doubt since they know from Mara that both uh, that Kabaoth and Thrawn are working together. This mention of Mara's name causes an uncomfortable ripple to go through the meeting, of course, since Leia helped break her out of jail. Uh, Bell Iblis asks where this video came from, and Drayson says it was Talon Card, while making a kind of disparaging remark, at which Leia flies to Card's defense. It wasn't his fault the Katana fleet was lost. Garm actually concurs with this and says that they owe Card quite a bit. Uh, interesting you should say that, General, Drayson said dryly. 
As it turns out, he's already sniffed out Luke's fat line of credit that's going to card, kind of implying some untoward things about the Skywalker family. Uh, this causes Mon Mothma to jump in and put her foot down that no talent card has helped them, so he's worthy of their support and trust. You know, I do like how a couple paragraphs uh, before um, Thalia was catching some strays because uh, there's, there's a passage that says, uh, Leia looked at Counselor Thalia sitting silently at the table doing his... Private Bothan penance. <laughs> if Thalia was, hadn't been making that insane bid for power, dot, dot, dot. Which I don't know if that's really fair, because, like, I think with the timing of everything, like, e- e- like even if Thalia hadn't been dragging his feet or whatever, they still sent a mission there, and by the time they got there, the fleet was gone. So Also, I think in previous episodes, you expressed ast- astonishment that Philly was still a player in the what? book. What? And, yeah. And let, let me just let me just say, uh, his role increases as we go on in this uh, in this segment of the book. Well, that is true. He, to, he I believe more. both are surprises. Yes, he he does have more coming up. I do still think it's insane that this guy who was basically actively treasonous is still invited to high level war planning meetings, um, to sit there quietly, uh. <clears throat> there's, another, there's another there's another fragment of a sense that I found funny, which is uh, Commander Seth fan, Akbar's representative of the council, rolled his huge Mon Calamari eyes <laughs> toward Leia. And yeah, I know that aliens are supposed to be treated differently than humans for the for the sole purpose that we're humans reading a book made by a human. Yeah, presumably. yeah. I'm presumably Timothy Zahn's human, but just imagine it's like uh, uh, Han Solo rolled his human eyes towards <laughs> Leia. You, you might say that that, that sentence would be uh, stupid. Well, you could even add a description in there by saying, like, you know, Sesman rolled his large eyes at Leia. Like, you don't have to call them large Mon Calamari eyes. Like, we get it. Yeah. Um, we, we get another... We get another uh, useless description. I forget exactly where in the chapter, but it, where it says uh, um, Bell Iblis uh, has a senatorial voice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which, I don't know what that's supposed to be. Does it mean, does he sound like Ted Cruz? <laughs> you know, or, you know, Mitt Romney? I mean, yeah, these are our examples of, you know, senatorial voices we have in our lives, in our world. To compare it to your job, at least, like, if you said uh, librarian voice, you would have an idea of what that meant. Presumably it would be, you know, speaking quietly in hushed tones, as you would in a library. <laughs> I guess so. I thought you were going to but, say it would be the rich, buttery radio announcer tones of uh, yours truly. But I don't know what the fuck a senatorial voice entails. I, I'm willing to say perhaps this harkens back to the Roman Senate. And he's got like a kind of high-handed rhetorical style, you know, really holding forth and grasping his his toga, and while throwing his hand up. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but anyway, uh, Winter's comm link goes off in the middle of Dracing going on and on about something, and uh, he does the whole "Well, do you have something to share with the class?" routine. Winter meets someone at the door who passes her a data card, and she passes it to Leia. For you, Your Highness, the coordinates of planet Wayland. 
Ripples of surprise now propagate through the meeting, and Leia inserts the data card into the display computer, displaying a map with some planetary data. And here's I do like this I do like this exchange. Uh Drayson says, I was under the impression this place was gonna be a lot harder to find. <laughs> Leia shrugged. Apparently it wasn't. It's like <laughs> Okay. Clearly, clearly <laughs> Zahn being told to wrap shit up as quickly as possible. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and a Garmbel Iblis. Yeah, I thought this was to be more drawn out too, but I only got uh, eighty-seven pages left. Yeah, uh, Garmbel Iblis has a fun line where he says, "So that's the Emperor's rat's nest." Bell Iblis murmured, leaning forward as he studied it. I always wondered where he hid all those interesting little tidbits that seemed to mysteriously vanish from official storehouses and depots. It's like, what is everyone? Everyone knows that the Emperor was a pack rat. Like, because Han made a similar remark, you know, the last in the last section. It's just a weird dude. You've not you've not seen that episode of Hoarders with Emperor Palpatine, <laughs> with Emperor Palpatine on Hoarders. <laughs> There's like 50 dead cats crushed under newspapers underneath Mount Tantus. He's just got a bunch of stormtrooper body armor strewn across the place. <laughs> Oh, there's there's a spoiled jar of those little uh, snack frogs that uh, Jabba the Hutt eats. They've just been sitting out. They haven't been in a refrigerator. Tauntaun feces everywhere. Just everywhere. <laughs> oh. Um, I was going to say space newspaper, but paper doesn't exist, so I guess it'd be, uh, I don't know. Space, d- news, space da- discs. news data pads. There. There we have it. Hey, you know, we, we need to pitch uh, Robot Chicken on this sketch. I think it would go over. I think it would be a big hit. I don't know. It's not bad enough to be Robot Chicken, so yeah, we, we gotta, might be in trouble. We got to right? stupid it up. Um, uh, Winter demurs when Drayson asks where this data came from and stays tight-lipped, even as Mon Mothma expresses concern at where this information, at, at this information being kept from them. All Winter will say is that it is not her secret to tell. But in any case, the admirals agree that they can't send aid anyway. Leia is shocked, insists it's not a trap, but Bell Iblis steps in to tell her that, hey, if they did send any aid, then Han and Luke would lose the element of surprise. Leia felt her stomach tighten. So I guess she's about to have another baby. <laughs> Anytime I see that yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> I, know, I noticed that too. It comes up at least two more times in this section too. It's terrific. Um, and it is at this moment that Phalia is moved to speak, suggesting that the Bilbringi attack might be postponed so that they can deal with Wayland. Mon Mothman insists that's out of the question, but Phalia shoots right back that the planetary shield is protecting Coruscant from the asteroids. They have communications and supplies. Why not wait it out while assisting Wayland? Is it merely fear of looking weak and helpless? And Mon Mothma says, yes, that is exactly what it is. (laughs) The New Republic has to rule from a position of inspiration and leadership and cannot be seen to be cowering behind walls. Phalia flattens his fur, classic Phalia, and says it is beyond a matter of image and perception, that there are terrible things in that storehouse. Mon Mothma puts her foot down, however. I actually actually really like the way Zahn phrases it. He says, there are things in that storehouse which was never again see light. Yeah, and, yeah. And I and my note for for this sense is the phrase of never again seems very like is Zan obliquely referencing the Shoah or not? Huh. I had not 
thought about that. I I would wager probably not, but that's interesting. But I mean, I would think so too. But then we also have the fact that the empire is pretty much always painted as Nazi adjacent fascist. Yeah, that's true. That is true. But you know, for all we know, like the things that the fail is talking about is like. Uh, Emperor Palpatine has like 600 iterations of the fucking Billy Mouse Bass. And if you, if you like set off one, they all, they all, they all go like a fucking, uh, like a fucking, uh, uh dominoes. And, and then you're, you're just listening to a fucking fish, uh, singing, uh, take me Kenny to the, Rogers. yeah, take me to the river. Uh, well, Mothma puts her foot down, though, and even on the question of aid to Han and Luke, the opera- the Bill Bringy operation must go on so they can get that damn CGT array. Leia takes a look at Phalia's agitated face and wonders what he is so afraid of that Thrawn might get a hold of. Oh. From here... I mean, like, uh, isn't it bad enough they have the clone facilities? <laughs> yeah, that does seem like bad enough. I guess the idea is that, like, look, you think cloning facilities are bad. You know, who the hell knows what else is going on in Maybe there. in classic Zonian fashion, he'll never actually reveal what those terrible things are. <laughs> He's gotta because keep, that, would, yeah. that would warrant describing them. He's got to keep his powder dry for Thrawn Trilogy 2. Uh, which it's I guess like never happens the, because all of, his the, other, all of his other Thrawn novels are prequels to these. They are, there, there's a sequel in there. There's a sequel? Yeah, uh... I'm pretty sure. Okay, well, we'll 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 straighten it out. We'll straighten it out. We'll get to it. Um, but yeah, now I'm just imagining like we get to the we get to the fucking uh, storehouse mountain and and Zana's just saying there was a lot of evil things collected there on on you know <laughs> some uh, some racks. Truly, r- rows and rows of evil devices and artifacts. Ooh. Um. We we go we cut now back to the uh, the Chimera where Peleon is going to meet Thrawn after his you know his hour to kind of get his thoughts in order and it has one of my favorite lines that has ever uh, appeared in this novel. Peleon stepped into the dimly lit entry room just outside Thrawn's private command room. His eyes darting around. Rook was here somewhere waiting to play his little Nogri games. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good one. Uh, also, I just I, I want to uh, the internet ticker has established that um, the the Hand of Thrawn duology is set ten years after this uh, trilogy. So yes, all right. there is a, a a chronological follow up to to uh, the Thrawn trilogy. Well, fair enough. So that'll be probably so uh, Hand of Thrawn duology, Spectre of the Past. That'll probably be. Season five of the show, I believe so. Yeah, because we're going to take a break from Thrawn content, and so that we're to real do, fresh. Uh, baby books to do baby. Yes, a special type of baby books. We'll we'll tease that later. We'll we'll, we'll be we'll be a little we'll save that for later in the season. Um, Palaeon feels all, all I can say. All I can say is that uh, for season four, our Thrawnerdom logo is going to have a bunch of backwards letters as though a child wrote it. <laughs> Yes, and also the uh, any any S's will be Z's. Um, That'd be great if we got your six year old to do the to uh, do the logo the cover art for the season. <laughs> I'll see what I can get out of her. She's notoriously her own. She follows her own muse. I don't think I've ever like suggested something to her and she's drawn it. She just she just goes crazy with whatever is inspiring her at the moment. But we'll see. 
Um, like a true artist. Indeed. She cannot be contained. She's amazing. Um, Peleon feels a touch of air against his neck, spins around, and then hears a familiar cat-like voice mew, Captain Peleon. It's basically like he's, he's basically like having someone, this, this, this uh, incredible assassin did the, you know, tap you on the opposite shoulder from the direction they're in, and he fell for it. Uh, or, you know, just to harp on the cat-like voice, now that we know that uh, Chris Pratt is voicing Garfield in the new Garfield movie, just imagine Ruck is is voiced by Chris Pratt. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to imagine that. Um, Pleon passes through and notices that Thrawn's room is filled with holographic representations of two styles of art and a large tactical hollow of the Tangreen system. Pleon reports the status of Tangreen, where rebel ships are moving their forces into strike position, quote, sneaking their devious way into our trap. The throng remarks that that's sure convenient and motions toward the art, identifying it as Mon Calamari, asking what Peleon thinks of it, thinking to himself that it is as, quote, as repulsive and primitive as the Mon Calamari themselves, end quote. He calls it very interesting. And, man, Peleon, like, they, they build spaceships. Like, they, those, the Mon Calamari cruisers, like, that was a thing that they did. They're not primitive, clearly. Well, this actually uh, dovetails with something I was about to bring up, which is this this segment really uh, highlights Polyon's racism. Yeah, because uh, there's there's a, a like three paragraphs before this, it says someday he promised himself darkly he would pr- persuade Thrawn that a Grand Admiral of the Empire didn't need an arrogant alien bodyguard to protect him, and when that happened, he was going to take a very personal pleasure in having Ruck killed. <laughs> Now I find I find the the descriptor alien bodyguard curious because Thrawn's an alien. Yes, yes, right. Yeah, he seems to. So, well, that's the thing. It's like it's dude. Read how the Irish became white. This is how the shit works. How, how the chips became white. <laughs> how the chips became white. How the chips became human. <laughs> that's exactly what's going on here. If you if if you as a as a as a uh, a marginalized ethnic group, manage to integrate yourself successfully into the the dominant group's kind of hierarchy as some sort of lower enforcer of that hierarchy, a la as the uh, Irish immigrants in WASP-dominated cities integrated themselves as enforcers against the black underclass, then they get to become human. You know, this is, so clearly Thrawn, in advancing the Imperial cause has earned sort of the designation of human in Pleon's, uh, Pleon's conception anyway. Um, Noel Ignatiev, How the Irish Became White. Very fascinating work. Uh, I think essential to understanding but I, but I love the, ethnicity I love the fact that not only is this, is this Mon Calamari art, it's art that's been done by Admiral Akbar. Yes, it's art that's been done by Admiral Akbar himself before he got into the military. Uh, or at least before he joined the so, Rebel Alliance. Like, like a certain... Uh, Certain great leader, uh, Admiral Akbar, <laughs> was also a failed artist. <laughs> we'll uh, let the audience put those pieces together. I like that the rest of the displays are of artworks personally chosen by Garm Bell Iblis, like for his home or his office or his or his uh, spaceships. Just the purple mountain majesty of Vermont. <laughs> Just a, uh, a a plaque given to him by the NRA to celebrate his uh, his A plus rating. Um. 
Just pick, just framed photographs of all the post offices he named. <laughs> uh, but uh, Thrawn turns the conversation back to the rebel movements, noting that they are being highly secretive and making Imperial intelligence work really hard for it to put the pieces together. Almost as if Tangreen was indeed their true target. Ah, oh, there's that old snake, Thrawn. He's reasoned out the feint. The real target is Bill Bringy. Palayan is shocked. Sir, that's insane. Of course it is. The insanity of men and aliens who've learned the hard way they can't match me face to face. And he's right. Again, he's got him there. Thrawn, Thrawn thinks of himself as human. He does. Because he just said insanity of men and aliens. He's an alien, damn it. He's fucking assimilated. I'm telling you, people. This is racecraft in action. This is how it works. Uh, Although maybe he's referring to humans as aliens, so... But he's the only <laughs> chiss we know of, so... so right, it can't I would be... be... I would be... Yeah. Yeah. It's very confusing. Um, if we have any... If we have any uh, listeners who are in, like, the 10th grade and they have to write a... Write an essay on a book, uh, please... Uh, let us know if you decide to do a race in the Thrawn trilogy. <laughs> we will be happy to be guest speakers at your high school. Um, we will, hey, we will, uh, we'll Skype in, you know, we'll zoom in. It'll be terrific. Um, <laughs> but plan suggests waiting for confirmation before moving any forces away from Tangreen. He suggests perhaps information from Delta Source. Unfortunately, Delta Source has been silenced, Thrawn said. But he insists there's yeah, no need. They found out our, our tree. Our tree spies. Our tree trick. Uh, but he insists there's no need for confirmation. This is the Rebels' plan, and it will make no difference whether they are crushed at Tangreen or Bill Bringy. Bum, bum, bum. What difference does it make? <laughs> well, that's what Thrawn's saying. You know, they're ready to face them no matter where they end up. So they're just, they're, they're fucked every which way. But that brings us to chapter 21. And we're back on uh, planet Wayland Smithers, where Mara is doing some lightsaber practice, attempting to slice a tiny seed pod that Luke Skywalker is using his force powers to set hovering in front of her. Don't rush it, Luke says. Try to anticipate the pod's motion. Mara has a different idea and instead reaches out with the force to grab hold of the pod herself for long enough to run it through with the point of her lightsaber. Luke is very pleased. It's not easy to divide one's attention between manipulating things with the Force and also manipulating them by hand. And then Luke makes an odd remark that Obi-Wan never taught him techniques to use the tip of the blade. <laughs> Which, I just think it's pretty funny that this is the equivalent of, of a guy giving someone who's been threatening to kill him the entire... Well, a book and a half, really. Yeah. He's basically giving, giving her his gun... And asking, and and it's implied he's asking her not to kill him <laughs> yeah. with it. You know, I would I would say that she's been threatened to kill him for two books now, because she starts like in the second half of the first novel of the trilogy, and then all through Dark Force Rising, and now we're more than halfway through this one. I think that's two full books of the trilogy. She's been saying, "I'm going to kill you." Um, uh, speaking of which, this is another bit of bit of praise I have for for Zahn, which is, I actually think the incredibly slow boil romance, I mean, we know it's, spoilers, right, this we, is a romance. We know it's headed toward romance. Luke yeah. and Mara Jade. Yeah. I mean, 
we know what what the inspirations for Luke and Mara Jade did in real life. You know, Daniel and Michelle got married. We did. Uh, um, and so I I think the romance angle's actually done pretty well because it would be ridiculous if like they just like fell head over the heels for each other over the course of a few chapters, but. But instead, you you see the relationship uh, thaw ever so slightly as Luke gives gives her more and more reasons for her not to kill him. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's true. I think I think it is. It's it's one of the human relationships that all well, human human or alien. It's one of the the person relationships that's handled. I think with some actual grace <laughs> and all. And this. I and I think it's really surprising considering. Uh, Zahn is such a sexless individual. Yeah. I think he's probably like a Ken doll. <laughs> like he wouldn't know a slow burn at all from his own experience, but you know, maybe he watched, he watched enough moonlighting to know how this will there, won't they stuff is supposed to go. <laughs> I imagine that instead of like, uh, Luke and Mara Jade having sex, like, uh, Luke is going to pick some space flowers from the forest and and uh, and give her a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. Ask yeah. her. Ask her to the uh, the the Republic Sadie Hawkins dance. That's right. And and Mara will accept them bashfully while uh, drilling her toe into the dirt like a cartoon hillbilly. And I know what pedants are thinking. The Sadie Hawkins dance is where the girl asks <laughs> the boy. Well, this is space, mm-hmm. and it said. A long time ago, so things are different. Well, exactly. And also, you know, we we don't know if they have Sadie Hawkins' dances in, in Star Wars. It didn't come up in the trilogy. So Zahn would have to say something like Spacey Hawkins, and it's different. He'd also come up with a much worse name than Sadie Hawkins, like, you know, Blarf Jargon. <laughs> <laughs> Luke invites Mara to the Fedge Blargon dance. <laughs> Luke Luke invites Mara to the uh to the what the Chris Peterson memorial dance. There we go. The Gorn McGillicuddy <laughs> dance. The the Isaiah Ramon McCready dance. <laughs> uh listeners, if you want if you have a stupid name you've thought of, please uh Send it to our email. Yes, please do. Thronderdomepod at gmail.com. Uh, just, so, so send us, just send us contextless lists of stupid <laughs> names. I was gonna say um I was gonna say uh, subject line stupid names, but really anything. We'll you know, we'll accept anything. Um She has another You Will Kill Luke Skywalker episode, uh, after all this. Uh and then uh, but just as soon as that starts, R2 starts a squealing. He's noticed some of those acid vines they've been cutting through. Only these have already been cut and bundled out of the way. Just like the dispatched clawbird from the other day, someone has been clearing the way for our heroes. Luke mentions that he's felt groups of natives occasionally, but they keep their distance. Han asks Luke... Oh, I just want to point out, is this the first time we've actually had Mara Jade respond to the voice telling her to kill Luke Skywalker? Because she says in... In similar italics. Yeah. Not yet. I still need him. Yeah. Well, I think she's... Yeah, I guess so. That's the first time she's, like, addressed it. That's a good catch. That's part... The dam really is breaking. 
Luke mentions that he's felt groups of natives occasionally, but they keep their distance. Han asks Luke to let him know the next time he senses anyone. Uh, a little while later, they finish making camp, and twilight thickens. Luke lets Han and Lando know, They're here. Five or six of them. Then Mara asks, Is that just the first group? And Luke is a little surprised, but reaches out again to find Mara was right. There's a second group. Another group of five or six. Though their minds feel different, like they're a different species. As they ease forward to approach, Luke catches sight of movement nearby. Lighting his lightsaber, whose glow reveals... A small figure in a hood who ducks behind a tree. Han and Chewie start blasting, but Chewie recognizes the figure who steps out into the open now that his jig is up. Luke introduces himself as the son of Vader. And I I should mention Mara is back at camp for all this. She did not join them to go out there. Mara's back at camp. But Luke introduces himself as the son of Vader, and Anogui responds that he is Ekrakor, Clan Baktor. Ekrakor leads them to a clearing where five members of each Wayland native race, plus a handful of camouflaged Nogri, await. One type of alien, the Minirshi, are covered in lumpy kind of plaques, uh, lumpy plates, and they look like walking rock piles. The other, the Sadans, are tall with four arms and shiny blue skin. Ekrakor reports that they have been trying to confront the launchbox guys, but the Nogri have been intercepting and driving them off. But... Now they've indicated that they wish to have a conversation with all of them. You forgot to mention that uh, the the forearm blue blue bluish crystal skin people mm-hmm. reminded Han of the brownish thing they'd have to shoot off three PO <laughs> their first day. That, oh yeah, which let, let's not forget the that classic creature, the, the brownish, brownish thing, thing, which again would have been like. Zon, you could have described the brownish thing a little more, and then maybe the the audience could have put together. Some sort of similarity. Now I'm imagining Zahn going, well, I gave them a color to work with. That'll satisfy the little SOBs. And, and I made the things that they look like a different color. So fuck them. <laughs> like the one thing we know about the brownish creatures is the thing that's not in common. Oh. I bet he has tons of contempt for the for the readers by this third book. Oh, I would imagine he's sick to death of it. Because uh. <laughs> he's probably had to go to conventions and... And listen to dumbass question after dumbass question. He is he has gotten more grief about hot chocolate than you can imagine. He is so sick of these nerds. Yeah. Um. But uh, so your dumbass Delta Source. Uh, <laughs> theories. But uh, so C three PO is uh, brought into the circle to translate, while Lando and R two hang back at camp. Uh, Han takes the win that he was right. They were being followed by some sort of stealth spaceship that carried the Nogri. If you remember, when they first got to Wayland, Han thought he saw a weird blip. And this was the what was the Nogri ship. So while not exactly honorable to be so sneaky, the Nogri felt it necessary to keep their word of protection over Lady Vader's family, while also being mindful of Han's hostility to the little gray jerks who kept trying to kidnap his pregnant wife. So that's why they did it all in secret. And I have a question for you, Ronnie. Has it... Has it been established that the Nogri, like, uh, like Luke can't sense the Nogri through the Force or something? I don't think so. I don't think that's ever come up. So how in the world were they able to, like, track them and follow them this whole time and Luke not notice them? I don't know. Maybe it's like the end of Predator where... uh... 
where Dutch covers himself in like uh, oh in the mud, mud. And dirt and shit. Right, so the 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 infrared thermal camera stuff doesn't work. I love the idea of the force only being able to detect heat signatures. <laughs> that would be pretty good. All right, I, I just I mean I maybe they stayed far enough away that he couldn't sense them, but the natives could get close enough to sense for him to sense them. I don't know. It, I mean, the problem with the force is that it's very ill-defined. And, <laughs> that's it, true. You know, it kind of just there's, it, there's, it does there's like and and the and the movies are guilty of it too because there are cases where like. Uh, like Luke will be in pain, and then three planets away, Leia will feel something. Which, right. Like my my fucking phone network doesn't go that far. So, <laughs> well, they they're twins, so they have a secret. They have a special bond. That would be that would be a good twist. Like uh, Leia thinks that she's force sensitive, but it turns out she's actually just a twin. <laughs> she's just getting just get, catching some shine off of Luke's force sensitivity. Yeah, maybe. No, it's like no. You have you have special powers, Leia. They're just twin powers. They're just twin powers. It's nothing to do with the Force. Um, so from here we get a council scene, but mediated through a Nogri and C three PO. So I will not be relating this in detail. <laughs> but the the upshot of all this. Uh, being, oh wait, did did the P word come up in this? Oh, I'm glad you asked, uh, Daniel. It does. Uh, here's here's the first use of it. Mm-hmm. From somewhere behind them came a familiar shuffling sound. Han turned, and a moment later, the equally familiar golden figure of three PO traipsed into view. Traipsed also <laughs> seems like <laughs> yep, light in the loafers into the into the clearing. <laughs> traipsed into view. Beside him, and a half step behind, was Mara, blaster in hand. Master Luke 3PO called his voice its usual mixture of relieved and anxious and just played prissy. Oh, wow. There it is. And I know what you're thinking. Uh, Zahn can't have possibly used the word prissy on the next page. <laughs> well, he did. You're, wait, you're telling me the guy who dropped the adverb gingerly two times in one page <laughs> used prissy one page after another, get out of town. Because you got three PO translated the melodious Minrishi words still coming out prissy in Han's opinion. <laughs> so uh. so he's able to tra- so he's able to translate these alien languages uh, uh, pretty well, but uh, they're a bit. Uh, he just he just can't help. I know this is a podcast, but I'm doing kind of like the the shaky. Uh, the shaky hand thing. Yeah, he can't help but put a little mustard on it, if you know what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> but to kind of uh, to, to cut through all the uh, morass of this uh, council scene, the upshot is that the native Waylandians um, fill them in that there was a first wave of human colonists who were resisted long ago. Then later came the Empire, who enslaved many and drove away the rest from their operations. After the building project was complete, someone who called himself the Guardian arrived who sought control of the natives. After that, a Jedi Master who defeated the Guardian, but then brought humans and aliens to live together under his immediate control. And now finally the Empire again. So the native Waylanders are not happy to see the Republic guys. Primitives always have this reaction to visitors, says Mara. And like, well, you know what, Mara? I think they're actually pretty reasonable <laughs> in, in having this reaction. It's not just a matter of being I also, primitive. I also like how, how Han Solo has no time for any of this. Yeah. Because uh, 
uh, 3PO saying, like, the, the, the Potsdam people have long memories. Apparently deliverers have come before, but nothing's ever changed. And then Han mutters, welcome to the real world. <laughs> also, this is like the eighth world you've been on in this book. It's like, calling it the real world is seems reductive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, welcome to the real galaxy. <laughs> uh, Han's stomach tightens at the thought that uh, Kabayoth might be here right now, but Mara doesn't sense anything. Can we get some Han Solo Mpreg in the chat? We got Han Solo Mpreg. Boop, boop, boop. Stomach tightening. Uh, did, did, Han, did did Zahn use the phrase stomach tighten in any other book? I swear to God. I don't think so. It was introduced in this book to like be part of the scene of Leia, you know, feeling that she's going to have the babies, and then he just keeps using it. Um, the Maneerish envoy concludes that they have no reason to trust that they will not be like all the other strangers to Wayland. Just as Luke asks 3PO to ask them how they can prove their good intentions, a wiry predator... That that's all we get. Leaps onto a branch overlooking the clearing and crouches to pounce. Chewie nails it with his bowcaster, which the Manirish notices immediately. <laughs> and in- I do like how there's there's like a sentence and a half where Luke Skywalker briefly becomes Donald Rumsfeld because C3PO says, "As you can see, Master Luke, we are merely the la- the last of a long line of invaders." Except we're not invaders, Luke said. We're here to free them from the rule of the Empire. <laughs> we'll be welcomed as liberators. Um, Saddam Palpatine's a bad guy. He's a bad guy. Exactly. Uh, but, uh, the Maneerish puts it together that Chewie, oh, sorry, he has a moment where speaking in broken basic, the, the Wayland native says, he have lightning bow, uh, referring to Chewie's bowcaster. And that kind of the Maneerish puts together that Chewie, like, I like that it took him, like, seeing the bowcaster weapon to put together that Chewie is a Wookiee but not a slave like the other lightning bow wielders that they met when the Empire used Wookiee slaves to build Mount Tantus. Like, that's that's how he puts it together like, that it's a Wookiee. I, I do like how Han is just naive, and he says, he's our friend, we don't keep slaves like the Empire did. Yeah, well, I'll have yeah, you know, yeah. I'll have you know that there was a an article in in Space Mother Jones saying that that as a uh, as a consort to Prince Leia, he used a lot of prison labor at uh, the, the mansion. <laughs> and I was gonna say, like, I know it's not exactly like that, but uh, Chewie owing a lifetime of service to Han. I mean, it might be for honor's sake, but I don't know. But anyway. Yeah, I never put that. I never put two and two together. That this is just him being enslaved in, <laughs> in gratitude. Exactly. <laughs> I think what we're looking at is just Wookies just like being slaves. I mean, yeah, I think I read that somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I think I read that in a Thomas Sowell book. Oh, that's right. That's right. They had the mindset. Anyway, well, this is a breakthrough. And several more minutes of discussion pass between the two native alien groups. They conclude that they will offer safe conduct to the Republic guys, but will not get involved in the fighting to come. Which is good enough for Luke. And from there, from there we go to, I think, was easily the best portion, the best part of our, our portion we read today. And really actually pretty interesting. And it's a shame that Zahn is probably never going to develop it any further and completely did not. 
I don't know. It just came out of nowhere how well done this part was. But we go to an Imperial shuttle which is approaching planet Wayland. And there's a General Cavell who's piloting with uh, Joris Kabaoth. He lets Kabaoth know that they're almost there. Kabaoth rather cryptically asks him, Are we at the end of our voyage or at the beginning? The beginning. My 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 knee-jerk theory is that that Zahn is much more comfortable writing characters he created than characters that have expectations set up to them by virtue of appearing in the Star Wars movies. I mean, I think you're I think like, you're really onto something. Yeah, like he's just a more like, he's a more writerly like nerd. Like nerds will get angry at him if he writes Luke out of character, but he has all he has the entire canvas with which to. Create the likes of Kabaoth or, 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 or Travis. Or Thrawn or, and Peleon. Or, you know, or, yeah. Or uh, Gillespie, you know. Uh, so instead of like them doing something uncharacteristic, being out of character, it's just deepening their character. Sure. You know? That makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. I, I think he's more writerly when he's writing his own characters as well. Like, the actual sentences are better. Uh and you were just you were just praising this this uh, segment of the chapter. I also praise it because this is downright disturbing. Yeah, it's actually genuinely creepy. I guess we'll we'll we'll, we'll get into it here. Um, so Kabaoth asks him, "Are we at the end of our voyage or at the beginning?" The beginning, of course. Corvell told him, "The voyage we have set upon will have no end." And what of Grand Admiral Thrawn? Covell felt a frown crease his forehead. He hadn't heard this question before, at least not worded that way. But even as he hesitated, the answer came soothingly into his thoughts, as all answers did now. It's the beginning of Grand Admiral Thrawn's ending, he said. Um, and we have a few more pages. I, you know, I, I don't really need to go into it to kind of recap or whatever, but it's a very evocative kind of scene where it sort of demonstrates how Kabaoth's mind control really works. He is in Kovel's mind. The one I want to highlight is right after the last passage where it says Kabaoth laughed softly the amusement rippling pleasantly through Kovell's mind Kovell thought about asking what was funny but it was easier and far more agreeable to just sit back and enjoy the laughter anyway he knew perfectly well what it was that was funny yes yes see isn't that a great sentence it just takes you on that journey of like how the mind control works just in that passage I thought that was really really cool I really liked that part um, Kabaoth's one of the best characters of this trilogy. He he, he really he is. Contains multitudes. He's he on one hand he's a, he's a crazed clone old man with Alzheimer's in a dirty bathrobe. On the other hand, he's like mind raping uh, yeah imperial soldiers. He's like a a genuinely powerful creepy presence. Um, Kabeos- yeah, and this is like escalate. This is like escalating from when he. Uh, did the Jedi mind trick on Poleon, right. remember? Exactly. That's exactly it, yeah. So, it, yeah, it, it connects to something earlier in the novels. Congratulations, Timothy Zahn. You can do it. Um, now we're just praising him for doing, like, basic things, like <laughs> well, following up on on previous previous <laughs> events and foreshadowing. Yes, we are, but it was. I think this whole scene is really well done and genuinely creepy, and I really liked it a lot. Um, no, no, I I agree with you, but it's just funny that to, uh, like to... even our praise for Zahn is couched in like <laughs> smart alecky sarcasm. I mean, it has to be. We're we're it's a podcast, and we're jerking each other off. You know, um, 
Also, not only is this creepy, this is also vaguely homoerotic. Yeah, well, well that's I'm going to get to. And by vaguely homoerotic, I mean very homoerotic. Yes, um, I'm going to get to. Because says, do you ache with my loneliness, General Covell? Yes, I was going to. He said, warming Covell's mind with another smile. Yes, of course you do, but be patient. The time is coming when we will be many. When the time is here, we will never be lonely again. Observe. Yeah, uh, there's a, a part later which is really good. Uh, but to get the plot stuff out of the way, Kabeoth tells Covell that Skywalker and Mara Jade are both here on Wayland, and the key to Skywalker's soul is waiting for him in the mountain below. Um, Kabeoth has kind of a moment where, like, Covell kind of passes out of his control. I think it's one of his Kabeoth's kind of fits. Um, and he's losing control of Covell's mind, which Covell experiences as an unbearable emptiness and loneliness. Kabeoth pulls himself together and says Covell must obey him completely, up to and including repeating the exact words Kabeoth gives him to say. Exactly. Covell pleads, If I do that, will you come back? The emptiness will be gone? Kabeoth pledges that it will be so, but only if he obeys. So they uh, they land at the, you know, the, the space pad. They uh, meet with some men upon landing. Uh, it's, it's, it's vague in the actual text. It just says that Covell repeats everything he was supposed to. Then the men and the master leave. And then it says here, he stared off across the place they'd left him, watching the pattern of lines and listening to the emptiness all around him. Eventually, he fell asleep. Humble suggestion for the title of this episode, Brokeback Tantus Mountain. (laughs) Brokeback Mount Tantus. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, 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 maybe so. But I thought that was a really cool, like, uh, you know, we we don't do it justice because we're having to, to recap here. But it's actually a very also we're we're sarcastic jerk offs who are not giving this like any sort of gravity. Right, right, right. But right. I I will say I'm giving Thrawn a lot. Of, I'm giving Thrawn the credit here where it is due. This is in solid three, possibly three and a half star territory. Uh, it it was very affecting. It was a very interesting insight into how creepy Jedi mind powers actually affect people. Um, and I thought that was neat. something that I, something that I don't think uh. Star Wars has done before as of like 1992 I don't think no certainly not like uh, you know like it's really the Jedi mind trick as established in in the original movies is basically like you know Obi-Wan like says something like you know these aren't the droids you're looking for and then they they go oh well these must not be the droids we're looking yeah that for. it just makes someone very suggestible and that whatever like it's whatever but I mean but in a sense like I mean Obi Wan did the same thing he basically inserted his thought into their minds and that's you know yeesh <laughs> but uh, well Obi Wan was a bastard and I'm glad he's dead yeah he deserved it he got everything that was coming to him we go back now to the lunchbox crew. Where Mara is keeping watch overnight, leaned against a tree. Uh, a Nogri assures her that she need not stay awake on watch. The Nogri are taking care of that, but Mara demurs. She asks if they finally figured out that uh, the Empire and Thrawn have been stringing them along. And to the, to the Nogri's surprise, and it turns out Mara had actually heard rumors. And she says more like jokes, really. It's kind of a nasty thought of all the Empire guys laughing behind the Nogri's back. Uh, but the Nogri... I mean- Fair, I would too. They are gray jerks. I hate the I hate those gray needle teeth assholes. Yeah. Uh. So, and we have a very interesting moment here, which raises a lot of questions. But the Nogi lets Mara know that when the time is right, they will launch their revolt, including five teams to join them here on Wayland. 
that they had transmitted the coordinates back to Cor- uh, the coordinates of Wayland back to Coruscant once the Falcon led them here. The Nogri mentions that they will help the son of Vader by eliminating every last reminder of the Emperor's presence on Wayland. And Mara catches that and is like, who is this son of Vader you're expecting to show up? And the Nogri's like, uh, you mean that guy over there who's been with you this whole time? And she's, Mara stared... The doctor is a woman! Mara stared at him through the darkness and suddenly her heart seemed to freeze in her chest. You mean Skywalker? Uh, you did not know? (laughs) Which is a very good question, Nogri! Is it a secret? Is it a secret? too. It it reminded me of the... It reminded me of the Seinfeld joke where Kramer uh, finds out from a movie he was watching that people could come out of comas, and it's like, uh, he asked Jerry if he knew that, and it's like, I didn't know it was possible not to know that. <laughs> yeah! And I did I didn't, I didn't have the moment where I had to think to myself, um, has it never been established that Luke is uh, Vader's son to Mara? Because, I don't know, I thought that, that felt like something that she would know. Well, I mean, it feels like something that the whole galaxy would know. Like, how the fuck is, like... Is, is it a secret that Darth Vader used to be Anakin Skywalker? No. Is it a secret that the most famous person in the galaxy who killed the Emperor with Anakin Skywalker is named Luke Skywalker? No. What the fuck? How could you not put that together? I do like the idea of Darth Vader on Mori, you know... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Questioning the paternity <laughs> test. Um, so what if we both got a bunch of midichlorians? That doesn't mean shit. So so Mara, you know, puts it together and realizes that the Emperor's last command that's been echoing through her head for five years is an act of revenge against Darth Vader and suffers a major you-will-kill-Luke-Skywalker attack uh, in the middle of that. Uh, but I'm sorry, in, in the middle of that, another voice breaks through. I have seen you in my meditations. I have seen you coming to me and kneeling at my feet. You will be mine, and Skywalker will follow one way or another. And oh, great. Somebody let the old man make crank phone calls again. <laughs> <He's> <laughs> uh, Mara shakes her head to dispel all of this. Um, you know, this uh, Luke has kind of woken up in the middle of that commotion. Um, as he felt, uh, she asked, did you hear the voice? But he says, no, I, I was disturbed, though. I felt a pressure. And the Force, Kabeoth is here on Wayland. And there we conclude this segment of The Last Command. One that I thought was pretty good. You know? I, I do I do like how the chapter ends with another uh, rendition of You Will Kill Luke Skywalker. <laughs> Just one more for the road. <laughs> and, and moreover, it says... Her last memory as she dropped off to sleep was one of the voices in the back of her mind. So, instead of, like, counting sheep to go to sleep, she just hears, you will kill Luke Skywalker. (laughs) You will kill Luke Skywalker. She drifts off. Yeah. But this was, I I think, altogether, we had a lot of stupid names. We had a lot of shit that didn't make sense. We had a lot of things that weren't described. But. But we also had Zahn subverting expectations. We we did. We had these. For example, the end of chapter 21. It has one of the rare cases of someone falling asleep as, <laughs> as opposed jolting to waking, awake. jolting awake. It had the strongest Kabeoth scene yet, easily, with the General Covell stuff. Um, the Nogri weren't nearly as irritating. They actually seemed to make sense in the setting and whatnot. That's kind of come together well. Um, 
We had a lot of boring traipsing through the wilderness stuff, but that seems to be wrapping up because they've met the Nogri. They've concluded their truce with the natives. They can get on to Mount Tantus. Um, yeah, I, you know. In fact, my only my main complaint about this uh, segment of the book is that there are too many t- characters. It was a and, lot of, and I think we're gonna have that problem as the as the book wraps up. You know, we're just gonna get paragraphs of just him listing in names. <laughs> and what? <laughs> well, it's gonna be like you know the end of uh, Animal House, where we just get a little sentence yeah. about what happened to them. Yeah. <laughs> Senator Barney Bliss. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's that concludes our uh, our recap portion of the show. Exciting things are being set up. The, the climax is fast approaching. But speaking of climaxes and fast approaching, that sounds vaguely sexual. Um, it's time for the, really, the, the cherry on top of every episode of Thronderdome. The reason why you're here, the reason why I'm here, the reason why Ronnie's here. Uh, and that is, of course, our debate segment. Our famous debate segment, artisanal debate segment. Into the Thronderdome, where two men enter, two men leave, and the truth wanders off somewhere into the woods. Yes, and speaking of wandering off somewhere into the woods, we have a really thrilling uh, and I think stimulating debate topic tonight. And uh, what what is that, Ronnie? What are what are we what are we wrestling over? What what intellectual bone are we two pit bulls chewing on and tugging against? It's, I'm glad you brought up pit bulls because uh, <laughs> I just got in a lot of trouble online for uh, for making the uh, the ignorant assumption that uh, that that pit bulls and small children are sort of the Hatfield and McCoys of the 21st century. <laughs> you you think you're in trouble it, today? Yeah. It, it, a lot of a lot of pit bull owners were very aggressive towards me. It's almost as though the owners took after their dogs and not vice versa. But anyway, <laughs> the, our, our topic is not about pit bulls, whether or not they're going to maul your child. We're about, uh, we're talking cryptids. Uh, cryptids is a, is a, tech, a technical or a slang term for cryptozoology. Yeah. And cryptozoology is basically uh, Pokemon, but in real life. <laughs> So it sounds like you're pretty pro cryptid. Uh, so how about how about you kick us off? Like uh, you know, sell me why don't you on the idea of cryptozoology and and the the supposed reality of these uh, phenomena. Well, let me let me start off by listing a couple of the cryptozoology uh, uh, critters that uh, you you might recognize. Um, there's there's. Uh, there's a whole lot of them. Uh, there's there's Bigfoot, which you might uh, remember from the Dean Kane uh, series about hunting Bigfoot. There's uh, the Loch Ness monster. There's uh, the Yeti, which is sort of the uh, the the winter version of the of the uh, of the Bigfoot. There's the Chupacabra from Mexico. Uh, the the goat sucker as it's called. There's the Jersey Devil, the uh, the megalodon. There's the the squonk. Do you know about the, yes. the squonk? Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, there's a whole list of them on Wikipedia if you if you want to look. <laughs> there's also like a lot of crypto 
crypto uh, zoological uh, characters that are just sort of uh, a distinct uh, extinct animals that that are posited to still be around, like the Tasmanian tiger slash uh, Tasmanian wolf. Hmm. Yes. Now, okay, I've I've listed a bunch of them. Now, why are they cool? Because, well, they just are because. Most cryptids are, like, either uh, throwbacks to prehistory, like the Loch Ness Monster, or uh, vaguely, la- vaguely like, humanoid uh, uh, sort of missing links, like uh, Bigfoot, Yeti, etc. Now, now, re- now, what I'm arguing is that they may not necessarily exist, but what's the harm in believing they exist? It's 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 sort of like the equivalent of uh, believing in aliens, but without all those anti-Semitic tropes that Daniel always <laughs> fucking brings up every goddamn time. I want to wax rhapsodic, nostalgic about the X Files. I have I have him in my fucking ear like Tinkerbell saying like, "Well, you know, Greys are actually just blood libel." <laughs> That's not exactly the the connection, but okay. Sorry, it's much more boring and nerdy. It's, it's way more boring than that, yes. <laughs> but not only are cryptids pretty cool, the idea that cryptids exist suggests that there are uncharted parts of this world that we've yet to yet to fully uh, comprehend. And uh, I, I would argue that we actually do have uh, real proof of of real cryptids in that we're always discovering a bunch of shit like uh, deep in the sea that we never thought were possible. Like all of those, all of those fish that have never seen like light, for example. Sure. All right. We're always, we're, we're always getting like, you know, you're, you always see news stories about them discovering new ones of those. And I figure if you can discover you discover some uh, nonsense under the sea. Why can't you? Why can't you discover some nonsense in the forest? <laughs> uh, fair. I I will uh, I, I I will consider these remarks and uh, I will prepare my rebuttal. Um. So first, I'll address kind of the the what's the harm angle on that, and I do think that there is. I think there is a bit of a a misunderstanding of the natural world that can be encouraged by cryptid stuff. I think it leads to a misunderstanding of what it means to be a rare animal. Um, Because a lot of these, a lot of these critters, a lot of these, these cryptids are rather singular, right? Like the Loch Ness monster. Yeah. It's not, a type of animal called a Loch Ness monster, and there's many of them. There's, there's, you know, thought to be one monster. It lives in the in Loch Ness. Uh, same with Champy, you know, in Lake Champlain. Uh, Bigfoot's a kind of a different story. You have a lot of different reports of Bigfoot all over the uh, kind of all over the country. Various kind of regional variants. Like actually, around here we have Skunk Ape. Uh, that's our our local variant of uh, of the Bigfoot. Um, but I, I, I mean, Skunk Ape just sounds like something I would call you. <laughs> Well, it's very in keeping with our Alabama roots around here. But uh, the 
But what I what I what I'm trying to say is that I think it 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 gives a, an inaccurate impression of what a like a, a rare animal is because any animal any animal that that survives unless it is literally the last of its kind is a member of a population. Moreover, if it's going to exi- it's going to be around for a long time, if it's if it has been around for a long time, if it's going to continue to be around lo- a long time for us to look for, it has to be a member of a sustained breeding population. So to have a rare animal is not or a rare creature is not just a matter of there's one lurking around out there. Like the Loch Ness monster would have to be part of a somehow reproductively successful lineage. And there's just no way that Loch Ness could support a population of these critters. It's just not possible. And I think this sort of lends a kind of... It skews the impression of what a rare or endangered animal is so that people can think like, well, you know, yeah, there's like, you know, two of this turtle left in the world, but, you know, there's two of them, just like there's, you know, there's a Bigfoot or something, so it's fine. No, that means they're gone forever within your lifetime. They're just going to be gone. Because there's not a breeding population to sustain that that type of animal, um, and I know that got very serious. My, there. my, my counterpoint is in Pokemon, there are a number <laughs> of creatures that are, you can only catch one of, like Mewtwo. Uh, that's true. Mewtwo is a singular, but Pokemon don't reproduce sexually, do they? Yeah, they do. Oh, that's right. You can breed them now. Oh boy! Starting with Generation Two, buddy. That was a long time ago. They all lay eggs. They they started fucking pretty early on. Okay, uh, but uh, to get to get to more my basic objection to you know, look, uh, you bring up like, hey, we're always like you know finding new things in the ocean. Why can't there be new things in the forest? Fair enough. The things we find in the ocean are small. They are small. The new animals that we find, like new species, are identified. They're ident- we're identifying new species all the time, yes, because like scientists are taking a close look at animals. But these are small animals. You know, they're they're, they're you, we might find new species of rodents and birds all the time because we just hadn't really looked closely enough at these populations of rodents and birds to determine like that there are separate species involved. Uh, and yeah, the, like the I think the most the the most recent like large quote-unquote new, like, animal new to science to have been discovered is something like, um, I don't know if it's exactly this animal, but there's there's one like the the dick-dick. Do you know this one? It's like a tiny deer-like thing from yes. uh, Southeast Asia. And that's about the size of, it's a little bigger than a cat. And that's the biggest new animal to have been discovered since, like, I think the Okapi in the 1930s. So, I just don't buy... So what you're saying is we're due. <laughs> we're due for more animals. We're due for more... I was going to say, it It makes it high... I think it's highly unlikely that there is a sustainable breeding population of large-bodied hominids in North America like Bigfoot. But, then again, we're due. So... Well, well let, me, let me tell you about... Uh, uh, what might be referred to as an ancient cryptid. You know, a, a big guy with, with a lot of hair who mm-hmm. was who was known for, for uh doing uh doing preposterous things. Yeah, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. <laughs> I thought you were saying I they're gonna talk about Enkidu from the Epic of Gilgamesh, but yeah, Jesus is good too. Jesus if you think about if you really think about it 
are there that many differences between him and what we refer to as the Yeti? I was going to say, I think Jesus counts as a cryptid because, like, he's prone to making mysterious appearances and then not being able to find him again. There's also a lot of uh, disputed video recordings of Jesus. <laughs> a lot of hoaxes. It's a lot of hoaxes. There's disputed uh, evidence in, in burnt toast. Uh, just like Bigfoot. And, and given the way humanity is particularly shitty... I could very well see a case where someone encounters Jesus in the Himalayas and instead of, you know, uh, receiving his, his uh, lessons about, about uh, God and forgiveness, guy just shoots and kills Jesus, you know, skins him, puts his, <laughs> puts his head mounted in his cabin. And... And, and right there, we've ruined humankind's chances for reconciliation with the mo- the most highest. <laughs> Just instantly. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. Jesus and the Yeti are one and the same. That's a, a more powerful argument for the ver- veracity of cryptids I could not imagine. Uh, well, as always, listeners, I uh, we, we leave it up to you to determine who won that round. We have we've gone long tonight. Uh, so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to wrap it we up. Had, we had a lot to talk about. We did have a lot to talk about, and we and we talked about it well and at length. And uh, you know, what's always great is I think about how long it's gonna take me to edit these things. Um, so, but don't listen to me belly aching. Go go enjoy your life. Have you some know, fun. You know that you love listening to yourself talk. I do. Daniel. I do love listening to myself talk. And after and after a, almost you're, a month, you're just a you're just a bird admiring yourself in the mirror. After almost a month of not being able to hear my own voice because uh, we haven't been able to record because of my uh, hacking up my lungs, this is going to be a real treat. Um, I do admire myself, and I feel that our listeners should as well because they made the great choice of choosing to listen to Thronderdome. We appreciate each and every one of you little goofballs out there listening in Radio Land. Please, if you have any thoughts about cryptids or Chris Peterson or uh, stupid names, please drop us a line at thronderdomepod at gmail.com. I sometimes check the email. Uh, but with that... And next next time we're going to be doing chapters 22 through 24. That's right. And, and I believe that this book uh, contains 29 chapters, so we're... We're in the home stretch. We are, yeah. That's three more episodes left of recap shows. Holy moly, Ronnie, we're gonna do it. We're gonna, and we might even do yeah, it. We're gonna be we're gonna be done by the end of the year. I was gonna say we we'll be done by the end of the year. We might even be able to like get it in the can before the first anniversary of the show. It's very possible. It really is almost entirely reliant on your ability to stay healthy. <laughs> well, we all know Which how... I mean, <laughs> I'm going to hedge my bets on that one. We'll see if I can hack it. Um, in the meantime... You might get thrush or something. In the meantime... Uh, everyone enjoy your lives. Love the people around you. All the hippie bullshit. And we'll be back for more Thronderdome next time. Good night. Remember, th- remember that the Yeti loves you. Yeti Jesus loves you. <laughs> Yeti Jesus loves you, and the Loch Ness Monster is 100% not real. Quit being a baby. Good night. Good night.